it's caregivers that are helping to fortify these individuals. It's caregivers who are really helping to improve that quality of life for folks. So even if they are living with these chronic conditions, they don't have to feel so destitute. You know why they're not feeling so destitute? Because caregivers, their family members who are there that are loving and caring for them, we are shouldering our own burdens so that we can help to uplift our family members and policymakers and those who have the levers to be able to change the burden on caregivers really need to do their part. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with my colleague, Shanta Chambers, who is Patient Advocate Foundation's Executive Vice President of Health Equity and Community Engagement. She enjoys golf and mentoring young girls in her free time. So thank you so much, Shanta, for joining us today. You are helping us kick off our second season all about caregiving and the support that caregivers need and their unique experiences and resources that are out there and exist. And we thought that you would be the perfect person to start this season off with an introduction. So can you share with us a little bit about your caregiving journey? What has that looked like? I'm glad you chose the word journey because for me, that's exactly what it has been. It has been a journey. This journey for me began in the late 90s, so around 94, while I was actually still in undergrad in college. And it's at that time that I learned that my mother had multiple sclerosis. She had kept it from me for many, many years. And at an appointment one time during the summer is actually when I learned about what was going on. And she began to quickly decline. But I think my journey probably truly began, I would probably say about 20 years ago, because she did get to the point where she could no longer continue to do some things for herself. And so her resilience, you know, her resilience just as a person living with multiple sclerosis was really just the wind beneath my wing. And to see this very fearless woman still try to do everything she possibly could do to live her best life, I felt this obligation to do whatever I could do to help make her journey as easy as possible. My mother and I are really, really close. So we've been side by side, we've traveled together, and now we're traveling this path of caregiver and care recipient. Most recently though, in August of last year, um, my caregiving journey took a, a turn. And it was at this time that my mother, who is completely housebound, was subjected to COVID that potentially may have been brought in by one of her other care providers. And so because she did have a pre-existing condition, needless to say, the impact has been monumental. She is now completely non-ambulatory, which she has been now for about the last two, two and a half, three years. And so she's completely reliant on someone for everything. And so not only is she non-ambulatory, but as a result of her multiple sclerosis, she has extreme spasticity 
and tremors, and she also suffers from optic neuritis, which is impacting her vision. But through all of this, through her inability to be able to see, through her inability to be able to feed herself or move herself, her spirit is just so contagious. And so for me, that is what ignites me as a caregiver. That is what drives me. But when COVID hit, it was almost like a gut punch to both of us. I ended up having to move into her home because not only was my mother subjected to COVID-19, my 84-year-old father as well, who I also serve as a caregiver for because he is actually a stroke survivor. So I'm in this dual caregiver role for both of my parents. And from August to January, there were those moments when I did more crying than I did laughing because the weight was just so heavy. And I think sometimes that as a caregiver, people don't fully understand just the weight that you feel. You have an emotional weight, you have a physical weight, you have a financial weight, you have a social weight, and you're trying to carry all of this. But before your loved one that you're caring for, you're trying to present this countenance of, of just happiness and joy because you never want them to feel that they are a burden to you at any stretch along this journey. And so, yes, it's been a journey, but it's a journey that has made me more compassionate, more understanding, and more patient. What I truly appreciate about what you shared is that you highlighted the complexity of caregiving, the struggle in it, but also the beauty. It's not one-sided. You know, it's not all bad. It's not all good. You know, you mentioned how your mom's resilience ignites you, but also that there's weight to it, you know, and not wanting to share that weight with the people that you care for. So for you personally, how do you balance that weight? How can you care for Shanta while trying to take care of everyone else? That's a lesson that I'm learning. And most days I fell at it miserably. You know, part of it has just been the strength and just my own personal faith and just how reliant I had to become on that. And then the other part is I had to quickly learn that my tear ducts have a purpose. <laughs> and I had to cry sometimes and I had to know that it was okay because that was a form of releasing and in that releasing, what it allowed me to do was to cry out. And so in those days when I was frustrated, when I'm asking myself, you know, why did this have to happen to my mom? Why did this have to happen to my dad? Why am I finding myself in this, this moment? Because you do find yourself asking the why question. Caregiving forces you to stop. It forces you to slow down. It forces you to prioritize. And that has been probably one of the greatest lessons for me, realizing that I don't have to do everything today. And I didn't learn that early on. Early on in, in this process, I was still working full time, staying with my mom full time. So I would be 
up with her during the day. And then once I would put her down for the night, I would work to maybe about two or so in the morning, only to be back up at seven again to try to get some work done before I got her up for the day. And so I was on this vicious cycle and reached a point of just absolute exhaustion. And so I think that the aha moment of realizing that I didn't have to try to do everything in that prioritization, it taught me how to prioritize me and also how to breathe. And so I think that very real conversation with myself around you have to take care of you in order to truly be able to take care of them. So simple things. We always talk about stopping the smell of the roses. My mom has had rose bushes outside her home forever. And I see them every time I go. But for the first time, I actually stopped and touched and looked at those bushes. They've been there for years, but they had a different meaning now. And so I think for me, it, it was about finding those things that maybe before had one meaning, but now as a caregiver, they have a different meaning to you and taking the time to find those things and act on those things and know that it's okay. I appreciate how you highlighted that things had different meanings now that you're a caregiver. It's kind of like you're seeing it through a new lens and it's an elevated lens, you know, it has, it has changed you, but it's changed you for the better in so many ways. What were the differences that you experienced between caregiving for your dad and then caregiving for your mom? When you're caring for somebody with multiple sclerosis, literally, you never know. It can change at a twinkle of an eye at a moment. Although she's in a state of what we technically would be classified remission because of where her disease has progressed, the likelihood of any type of reversal is very limited. So yes, you know, we're kind of stable right now, but stable for her still means that right now she's non-ambulatory. She does have the tremors, the spasticity, et cetera. And so stability just means that at this moment, we don't see any active progression. In terms of my father, so my father had his stroke, oh, some 30 plus years ago. But actually what happened was once he was hospitalized for COVID, he had a subsequent stroke. So when he came home, he was unable to walk on his own without assistance. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't sit. He couldn't talk. So he had a lot that he had to relearn. So now here I am faced with these two individuals who have actually some similarities. What was so amazing was that my father saw the degree of care that I was having to render for my mom. And actually that pushed him to really work hard on rehab. Now note, it was a month after my dad came home before any of those services even started. So not only am I now a caregiver, I am now the occupational therapist, the physical therapist. <laughs> uh, I'm the speech therapist. I'm the home health aide because now I'm having to bathe him. And so, so everything that I'm having to do for one, I find myself having to do for the other. I would also have to say, that the other piece with my dad is, I didn't even have the administrative or the financial things in order the way I had for my mom, because all of this with him was unexpected. So along with just trying to take care of his basic care needs, now 
here comes this administrative piece of trying to take care of his financials and power of attorney and healthcare proxies and all these things that you just don't think about, then you get thrust into it. So at any given time, you know, the role of you as a caregiver can take on so many different forms, regardless of the condition for the person um, that you're caring for is. Because guess what? In a twinkle of an eye, it can all change. I went from having, yes, a father who was a stroke survivor and a mom with MS to two parents that are now COVID survivors. So go figure. What are some resources that you know of that are currently in place that people should know about? They can be policies, they can be organizations. Uh, what are some things that caregivers should know that they can start tapping into? So I never even thought about applying for the state Medicaid for my parents because for so many years, my knowledge of state Medicaid was that you had to be nearly completely destitute and almost on the verge of homelessness to be eligible. And I knew that that was not my parents' situation. They are definitely not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. You're talking about two individuals that are living on a fixed um, disability income, which of course is not much at all. But I still didn't think because they still had a home that they would be eligible for Medicaid. Well, of course, you know, that was one of the recommendations from the case manager when, when I called, she says, hey, have you considered applying for Medicaid? And I was like, um, well, no, how do I even do that? And so she emailed someone at the state. I don't know who she emailed, but she emailed to ask some very pointed questions. And then they responded like immediately, right, to her. And I'm like, wow, she has superpowers. But, um, <laughs> and so she says, okay, you need to do the application. And this is what the person told me you needed to do. So I follow her instructions to the T. And for my dad, he actually ended up being eligible for, I think it's, it was, I think it's called low income Medicaid or something like that. But needless to say, so because of his eligibility, they actually pay his, his Medicare premium, right? So I would say, you know, see if your loved one may be eligible for your state Medicaid program. And then the person who the PDF case manager had reached out to she and I spoke and she told me about here in Georgia, it's called the Georgia Division of Aging and whatever state or county someone may live in to reach out to that Division of Aging service to find out what type of services that, that may be available. Georgia has moved to this Community Care Support Program or CCSP. Basically what this program would be was is a program that if the person is eligible, could receive some in-home support. It of course, is at a cost, but it's a reduced cost. Even though I learned about it, trying to access it has not been easy. And even when I spoke with the person from the Department of Family and Children's Services, she shared with me, you know, that unfortunately the infrastructure is not there in the state. And she basically told me to be prepared for a six-month to 12-month wait list, right? And so it's like, you know, come on, policymakers. We cannot, you know, we cannot have this vision of wanting to allow people to remain in their homes and receive care in their homes and not make sure that the infrastructure is there to support such an initiative. Even for me, if I could have one day or two days a week where someone could come in and help with my parents, 
you have any idea how helpful that is. But to say that someone has to wait six months to a year, it's not like my parents, I can tell my parents, hey, okay, you need to just hold off. I don't need you to be able to eat or bathe or need to toilet or anything like that for six months to a year until we can get someone who can help me. That's not realistic. It's almost like dangling an option in front of somebody, but it's an option that's not even really available to them. From a policy perspective, that we have to do more to fortify these types of programs that can bring care into the home to support caregivers, because it is a major, major, major major undertaking. And I will probably say, you know, we often talk about hypertension as being a a silent killer. I think we have to also begin to think about the, the physical, emotional, psychological, financial toll, and all of the other components of caregiving to being kind of this silent, and I'm air quoting around silent killer, because we have to make sure that we're bringing resources to help caregivers who are caring for individuals, but also ensuring that the quality of care support that is available to them is just that high quality care support, because no one wants to subject their family members to someone that is not gonna care about them to the same degree that we as caregivers do every single day. So again, it's kind of, I learned that this program was out there, but the resources that's needed to support this community care support programs aren't there. So again, we've made something quote unquote available, but it's really not accessible. Um, So I think to wherever possible, if people can also begin to advocate for these type of local or state level policy initiative, because we just have to get more support for caregivers because we are definitely unsung heroes. And I appreciate this initiative to really recognize and highlight caregiving. You make a valid point. What's the true value of a resource if you can't even access it because of a wait list, lack of infrastructure, lack of funding? So what other gaps have you seen in resources or support that's available for caregivers? How much time do we have on this podcast? (laughs) As much time as we need to make a difference. Oh my goodness. I feel like a kid at Christmas and you just said, make your list for Santa Claus. Um, If I start with just a COVID environment and kind of back into it. So of course we were in a situation where hospitals were on lockdown. So you couldn't do any type of visitation. They went to two different hospitals. So there was no primary point of contact responsible for communicating with me to any degree of regularity about their condition. Think about if you are a caregiver and the person that you're caring for is now within the healthcare system. So now you have this 84 year old man in this hospital all by himself away from his family and all of these people who are coming in masked up caring for him. So as the caregiver, it is he's inside these walls and I have no clue of what's going on. So there were so the inability to have someone communicate regularly 
with the family member was an enormous void that I saw just in that this COVID environment. And so I think people have to understand the importance of communicating with family when their loved one is inaccessible due to whatever dynamics may be playing out. When there was some episodic communication, it was disjointed. And so the challenge was I would get a call to approve a procedure on one day only to find out the next day that that procedure is no longer needed. Where communication is episodic and a family member is having to make a decision based on very limited information. And then for my dad, it was about needing to put in a port for his antibiotic or something because he was transitioning to rehab. And they put him through the procedure only to learn the next day that the rehab facility said that he didn't need that anymore. And so it was taken out. So I put him through that procedure based upon the information that I had. So imagine the guilt I felt in terms of, did I really have to put him through that procedure? And it wasn't necessary. So you're questioning, did you make the right decision as the caregiver based upon the information? Yes. But then later you were like, was it a rush decision or did I truly make an informed decision? So again, coming back to the importance of consistent communication. The other part I saw broken in the system was in the absence of his family, where is that internal advocate within the health system to ensure that someone who's transitioning from a hospital to a rehab facility is able to do that successfully, but not only successfully with their belongings. For example, when my dad was taken to the hospital via ambulance, since I knew I couldn't go with him, I wrote a note. I put a note in his wallet with his insurance card and his ID that had my name. It had a listing of his medications and his and the dosage and my contact information. So I sent him, I said I sent my dad to the hospital with a permission slip, right? So it provided them all of the critical information that they needed about him. No one even accessed that information. It was only after calling repeatedly that I was able to get myself on the board, on the record as the person to be contacted regarding him. And then the same thing happened when he went over to rehab. No one to really help connect with his family to make things uh, manageable. Even when he transitioned from rehab, like I said, there was a 30-day gap in terms of him receiving therapy in home. I got to a point to being so overwhelmed that I actually had to call Patient Advocate Foundation. So I had to call our organization to say, help me, because as someone who I thought was well astute in terms of healthcare and things of that nature, I felt like a fish out of water. I didn't know where to, what to do, where to start, how to start. Fortunately, with me contacting Patient Advocate Foundation, I was assigned an amazing case manager that helped me think through this, but she also helped me prioritize in terms of what was most important for me to do first. She went, she found forms that I needed to complete and things of that nature. Because I'm telling you, Ashley, if it was not for me making that call, and I can tell you that call came after one of those nights when I cried a lot, I decided that I needed to make this call. And if it were not for that case manager helping me think through, I don't know. I don't know if I would have been able to 
to really move myself through this caregiving journey with him. We are all supposed to be partners in this healthcare journey. And I didn't feel like I had a partner on the healthcare side of it. I felt like I was someone trying to save my family member. I just see so many triage points where if effective communication can be established, that it can make things better for everyone. And with that being said, what is your vision or hope for improving resources for caregiving? Caregiving is a very lonely experience. And I don't think that people sometimes realize the social isolation that caregivers experience. You know, I'll use a wrestling analogy. So I grew up watching wrestling with my dad. And the beauty about wrestling is if you had a partner, a tandem, at some point when you found yourself in your weakest moment or about to give up or tap out, you could reach up and you could tap your partner in the ring. For many caregivers, there is no partner to tap in the ring. So when I talk about creating these social support networks for caregivers and the need for policies to be there to fund and make them available, it is creating a resource so that when caregivers actually before they feel like they're about to tap out, but when they begin to recognize that they need to tag somebody else in the ring, that they're not waving their hands in defeat, but they're waving their hand because they know that they have a resource that they can reach out to or connect with that can bring somebody else in the ring. Creating and funding and making available that type of care support network so that caregivers can actually take an opportunity for respite. So I would love to see a policy platform that really supports the needs of caregivers because when we're having to step out of being a economic engine for society to care for our loved ones, there's a realization of the economic consequence when you're now having to take that caregiver out of the marketplace. And so I don't think people realize that. Here's an investment opportunity so that that caregiver can continue to work and be productive in all those things. So there's a mutual benefit and a return on investment by investing in caregivers. The question becomes, are we ready to be bold and provocative enough to realize and acknowledge the value that caregivers bring to our society? Secondly, we have to begin to look at where caregivers have to leave work or have suffered loss of insurance and things of that nature, how do we help fortify the health of caregivers to make sure that they have health insurance and access to health care in a way that we really can practice that self-care that you talked about earlier? Thirdly, let's celebrate our caregivers more in a way that really makes them feel appreciated you know, some probably do because they hear it from their family members. But I'm telling you, this is such a lonely walk most times. When our men and women go off to war, we sign flags, we make notes to send to them and to encourage them. And every single day, caregivers, they may not be in war, but they're fighting a battle every single day 
to lift the spirits of their loved one, to keep their loved one safe, to keep their loved one healthy. And every now and then, we should stroke them on the back and tell them that they have done a job well. Mm -hmm. That's good. I describe this, Ashley, as caregiving 2.0. I've been a caregiver for my parents for 20-something years that I thought I knew <laughs> what caregiving was all about. But I can tell you the last seven months has even opened my eyes to even have a greater appreciation for caregiving. These last seven months have been the most intense, most emotionally draining, the most physically draining, the most financially draining. And because I could no longer care for them 24 hours and work, I had to bring in some care support because I needed some help. And it is not cheap. So there have been some mm -hmm. sacrifices that my family, you know, my children have had to make so that I can care for grandma and grandpa. So I think caregiving is one of the most selfless, sacrificial acts that anyone can do for somebody. And I don't think that everybody really realizes it. I knew it before, but I know it now because this is caregiving to a whole nother level. So I have a, a keen appreciation for those who have been caregiving 24 seven, 365. I have a new appreciation um, for them because now I'm in that space. I'm in that club and I'm honored to be in this club. I'm honored to be among the millions of caregivers that are on this journey every single day. Caregiving is a calling. And even though for all of the reasons I've already shared, it's a rough one, I actually appreciate being called for this role. I put it in the same category of being bestowed the honor of being a parent. I appreciate this call. I appreciate this call. Yeah. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at mpaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.